welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Both Zurich and OnePath life insurance offerings deliver the broadest range of offerings in the market with a combined four distinct solutions on offer to better serve all Australians. At Zurich and OnePath, we believe in the value of advice and the professionals who provide it. This means investing in more ways to help your clients and making it easier for you to do business with us. To find out more about how we can help you and your clients, contact your Zurich and OnePath life or Zurich Investments representative today. G'day, Clayton here from XY Advisor, interviewing today Ray from XY Advisor and a bunch of other things, but we'll get to all that. Mate, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, so um, you're an interesting advisor. You know, you've won a bunch of awards, this, that, and the other. But the thing that I find interesting about your your view of financial advice or the way that you got into financial advice or your approach to financial advice... um, was because you were already in advice and you said to yourself, I need to do a degree and you chose psychology. That's interesting because you're the only advisor I know that did that. And I kind of want to take the chance to actually dive into that a little bit because we've never really discussed it at length. This is the mental health series and uh, it's obviously that interaction between humans and money that's the focus of this series. So, uh, if it's all right with you, maybe let's start with where your career began and why you chose psychology to study to become a better advisor. For sure, man. And I, I definitely would say that in my first few classes of psychology, they would look at me walking in in my suit and tie going, what is he doing here? <laughs> like... <laughs> why (laughs) (laughs) but when you think about it a bit deeper i think a lot of advisors are getting this now like it it makes a lot of sense right Mm. uh so the the embryonic version of this was actually in the tracer days where uh the the leadership team there would go to the u.s and and learn a lot of what u.s advisors were doing and seek to bring that over from that they created the the managed account service which took a lot of what the traditional work was away from the advisor. So uh, managed portfolios, all of these things were then uh, outsourced out to a different business. So it freed up a lot of space. I've got this image in my mind of like a bunch of papers on an advisor's desk. You just push all of it to one side and it's just clear space because you're not the investment guy anymore. You need to think about a deeper or a different way of working with people. I didn't realize it was to that extent. So you weren't dealing with investments at all? No. No. Well, we... I, I. to qualify what I've just said, it, we, we would work with clients to make sure that the investment program was aligned to all of the things that were important to them and, and was aligned to what they were comfortable with. But I didn't do any trading or anything like that. That was outsourced to uh, a managed discretionary account provider. Uh, and, and really, my job there was just to communicate to the, to the clients what 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 was going on in their portfolio but i wasn't i wasn't on the tools so to speak there interesting yeah that's so, sort of similar to how it was at dixon where where ben and i met where we were in we were the financial planning the the sis strategy arm of the business and then there was an investment side of the company yeah yeah for sure so 
once once you go through an initial program with somebody and, and you define what, what it is that they need from an investment portfolio, you put that to one side. We all know you shouldn't shop and change your portfolio every two seconds. So not not set and forget from an investment manager's perspective, but it was for us from a strategic perspective. So what are you talking about? And the US advisors were having this issue five years before we started to have the, the dilemma here. Uh, and what, what that created was a lot of the behavioral uh, competencies that advisors were starting to focus on. So they were uh, financial life managers were these advisors that would do all the number stuff, but actually they were they were working with people to to lead a life that was actually true to what they believe in, and it was more akin to psychology. Less so, I think one of the things that I I learned in my degree is that psychologists would traditionally uh, there's a theory in psychology called a set point of happiness, whereby everybody has their set point, and sometimes they're sad, sometimes they're happy, but you know, when, when time, when time comes into things, you, you fall back to this, this med- medium point, which is just where you, you sit as a, as an individual. Um, psychologists would traditionally work with people that had an illness or were suffering with a trauma or some sort of issue. And the psychologist was working with the individual to get them back to that set point. But psychology was actually going through quite a few changes when I started the degree as well. And that's where all the coaching discipline starts to come in. So what, what my understanding of what a coach does is what I learned is that they, they work with people that are actually at their set point already. And it's more around thriving and, uh, and peak performance and, and seeking to get the most out of things. So it's not solving a problem, but actually trying to create, uh, yeah, promoting, promoting. Would you say it's trying to shift that median upwards to closer to the happiest so or, or is it the median still exists we're just trying to spend more times on the plus side of that. the ladder the ladder right. yeah so there was the recognition that everybody has a set point and there's nothing that you can do about it but you can certainly choose how long you play at that point and and, and d- define your your day or your life in a way that that creates movement towards the the thriving side of the spectrum i guess interesting do you ever talk about that with your clients not specifically, no. I think a lot of what I've learned in my degree is baked into the way that I work with people, but I'm not. Uh, I, I don't think I'm as explicit. Uh, rec- recognizing that that there's this set point thing, and I've as I'm getting a little bit older now, uh, in my thirties, and all this sort of stuff. Ancient. I, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm I'm starting to to feel it a bit, <laughs> but I I recognize that when people come to me and they have things going on in their life that there's a lot of, I I certainly have the ability to be much more empathetic than I was in my earlier days. And I would say that one of the biggest benefits of doing a psychology degree for anybody in any job is the ability to reflect and be introspective or certainly learn a lot about myself uh, as well. So for, for financial advisors, I certainly think that there's on the surface level the dilemma of, okay, well, how are you going to work with your clients? But actually, I would suggest that the benefits of it is is deeper than that. It's, it's more at a human level, uh, such that I, I would encourage this stuff to be taught in schools. Yeah, I, I mean, basically, financial advice in summary is life skills that you should have, but that the our education system just avoids it, which is this life planning it's that psychology part and it's also the numbers right people don't even know how to do their own tax return um the thing that i find interesting about what you've just said in terms of coaching is taking you from where you like your center up into up into the positive and psychology or a psychologist is trying to take you from on the downside and getting up to that medium 
first of all, I find that as a very interesting, like I love frameworks and yeah. that, that explanation is <laughs> a framework. I you think like psychology. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this series, this 10 part series has largely been about identifying when people are on that negative side of mm. that medium. And then I guess in a roundabout way, what I've, tr- what I'm trying to discover is what an advisor can do when the client is on that side, who's on the negative, because uh, advisors play a really important role in getting the money. So I feel like advice traditionally has been, oh, if you're mentally on that side and there for a decent amount of time and we can prove it, we'll get you money. And so, and so, and money. It helps. Yeah, money helps. Money helps. And I think that's a really. I mean, no one else is doing that job. So we are the people for that job. However, during the course of this um, series, I've kind of been questioning the idea that is that in the best interest of the client? Yeah. Right? In is, that they're being incentivized to maybe not get better and go yeah. back to work because, hey, I'm getting paid on the 15th of every month. And exactly. I enjoy going to the beach on Tuesday. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but let's, let's assume for a moment now that because improvement in uh, your overall uh demeanor yeah means that you don't get paid then you're incentivizing staying in this position which is not good for the person as an individual mm. but then the advisor is in a really tricky position because then the advisor is what what do you coach and coax the person out of that depressed position so that they get less money yeah. free money or do you or is it in the best interest of the client to Get them out of there and because because the research shows, you know, if that person stays in that position for a long amount of time, they're going to get a, a, a cascading amount of other things go wrong. Health, yeah. well-being, right? So if you're depressed for X amount of time, then your heart disease comes and you're, you know, sitting on the couch watching Netflix all day, right? And so I find it a, a really interesting concept of exploring what an advisor can do, if anything, to get people uh, back up to where they should be. Because it's almost like the advisor is feels like we're doing a good job. If someone's depressed, we can go, hey, we can get you that money That because, you know, that's the point. And I totally understand that. And I don't want that to stop, right? Like, But at the end of the day, advisors did such a great job of that that APRA had to come in and rewrite the terms and conditions of what an income policy means yeah. because we bankrupted the industry, <laughs> right? So because all the insurers, no one wanted to take the first step back from, you know, offering this little T and C because X plan's little tool was going to put them at the bottom of the recommendation policy to the point where they offered so much and advisors did such a good job of claiming that APRA was like, right, we're not, no one reinsurer is going to touch the industry, right? And so... Like everything in life, there's there's balance. You go back and forth, right? But ultimately, capitalism, like if reinsurers are saying we're about to exit the country, right? Like at some point, you have to re-examine what's going on. And yeah. I, and I, and uh, advisors, I will say, have done such an amazing job on that. But I feel like it's one-dimensional. And I, and and so this this series has been about exploring about what else there is, and and. And should we be dragging people up to that medium to get them back into becoming a working, um, you know, con- contributing member of society? So mm. putting that premise to you. Yeah. 
How, how do you respond? I, I think I challenged the premise a little bit, and I'd be interested to explore the numbers in, in how people have behaved in the past. But I, I mean, even with what's going on at the moment, like things are crazy, right? Like five, five, ten years ago, if you spoke about the idea of being able to spend every day at home and working in your underpants, and like most people would be like, that's pretty cool, right? But actually, the reality is, get pretty over it. <laughs> and what I had found working with uh, a lot of my work was with pre retirees. Uh, 50, 60 and, and gearing up to retirement. And, and what I found was that when you remove the financial obligation to work, people ended up working probably even harder because it meant that they were able to do just the work that they enjoyed and mm. forget, like you just remove that pressure. So if you're on an income protection claim and you're sat at home in your underpants and you're, you're actually better, but the, the, the premise is that there's no incentive to go back to work. My experience with working with older people that isn't in income protection, but a similar sort of, uh, environment is that they're actually seeking ways to engage and do do things and actually be a contributing member to society because to receive a paycheck and not do anything else isn't happiness. Sure, yeah, or at least for a long period of time, or at least for a lo- yeah, 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 yeah. Five, <laughs> five, five, five weeks of holiday a year ain't bad, but exactly. uh, yeah, maybe maybe not years on on end. So. I don't know. I'd be interested to, to see that if, if there is this tale of, of people who are, and I'm sure there are the exception where people are obviously taking, taking the piss, so to speak, but I'd be interested to see if, if, if there were a lot of people who were on an income protection claim, uh, and were able to go back to work, but chose not to. Yeah. That's actually really good. I mean, I think that data by definition would be impossible unfortunately to yeah. get a hold of uh, <laughs> yes. because literally the survey would be are you rotting the insurance company so no. yeah exactly <laughs> so we, we spent a million dollars on the research turns out a hundred percent are still on claim that should be yeah um, and and i guess the the perhaps rather than you know taking a stab at what's going on um why don't we focus then on what you do and and i'll say do because undoubtedly you've come across this what do you do when you see clients that are headed onto that negative side of their median and do you act do you identify that obviously you're not you're not a clinical psychologist even though you have a degree in it and so you're probably not diagnosing and you know uh that kind of thing but from someone who comes at advice from psychology Mm. do you attempt to expand the role of an advisor by by helping people who are obviously you could say down in the dumps whether that's situational or 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 biological yeah do you do you see it as your role and if you do to what extent and if you are doing anything yeah do you find that it works the yeah i think one of the well there's a couple of things to that so one of the lovely things about what I've learned in psychology and what a financial advisor tries to do are very similar because it, it extends to go beyond numbers and actually tries to help people do all the things that they want to do. I, I don't think that that would be unique to any advisor hearing that. Um, well, as, as you were asking the question, I was thinking about the, I, I don't know that I've had many people knock on my door to speak with me about a financial plan who are really, really, really struggling, but rather, People who are keen to, they're more that thriving space. They're more akin to a coaching client where they're saying, okay, well, nothing's necessarily wrong, but I don't know that I'm taking all, of, I'm squeezing all the juice out of every situation and actually, uh, want, want to move towards that peak performance and that thrive. So I actually can't say that I've had too many people come in raw where they've not 
where where they're struggling. And and I think that's a shame. I wonder if there's an opportunity for the market to to say to people who are struggling, it's okay, and I'm 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 comfortable to help help you there. The, there's definitely mm, starting to see less now, though, uh, the idea that you need to have a certain amount of money to work with an advisor. So I wonder if that cuts off a lot of the 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 people who are on the left of that set point. Thinking to a couple of insurance claims or where where money has given us the opportunity to have a, a deeper conversation is I really just put it to one side and say, okay, well, if, if money wasn't an object or if, if you were doing all of the things that you, you wanted to do financially, just put that to one side, let's have another conversation. This is the work that I was doing with a lot of retirees to so say, what are you interested in? Like, what, what is it that you want to do? Because yeah. retirement at 55 as an example and waking up on Monday morning with nothing to do in my in in what I've seen in my clients is a, is a miserable it can be a miserable existence so what what are you interested in what do you believe in what do you want to do um, so having those conversations with anybody who have financial capacities I, I think is an important one uh, but but even for people who are struggling financially putting meaning behind the numbers to say okay well what okay let's put that to one side for a second and let's have a different conversation that's valuable but I, I don't know that I'm unique in that I think it's just that I've I've had the the opportunity, the fortunate opportunity to to explore the academic side, uh, but but I, I would suggest that there's a lot of people in the industry doing doing exactly that. Yeah, um, I want to explore how you go about those tough conversations with your retiree clients. Yeah, right. Do you have any tools, or do you have um, a workbook that you do? You have a list of questions, perhaps that you ask because the the severity of the outcome of that that conversation is so large yeah that i would imagine you'd want you you're, you're not just sitting in front of someone being like oh mate how's it going like what's your purpose in life what do you want to do <laughs> yeah man watch soccer all right cool now moving on to the other things like i'd imagine you've got a, a, a the, yeah there's a lot of weight so how do you make those conversations easier and how do you get the, the, how do you get those answers that actually lead to actions? Yeah, a lot of a lot of the time, people because we're not conditioned to answer these questions, and I always preface the conversation to say, "I'm going to ask you a lot of difficult questions, and probably you don't have the answers for." And that's okay. Like we can work this out. I'm not going to pin you to any of this stuff. But for a lot of pre-retirees, and I, I I can think of a couple of examples in particular where they they weren't sure what they were going to do, but what we agreed was that. Let's let's give it a crack. Let's just have a uh, a shadow retirement, so to speak. So using long service leave, taking three to six months out of the workplace, have a go, and let me know what you think, and mm. then we can have a chat on the other side of it and and work out what's important to you. And that that was always interesting and, and a challenging experience for people because and and as I say, a lot of the time they were like, I actually didn't like the fact that I wasn't doing anything. So creating an environment which mimics the decision that you're about to make to to get comfortable with that, I think. More recently, with a lot of younger clients that I work with who are getting a mortgage for the first time, the bank says they can borrow X. And I'm saying, well, actually, I think you could probably, well, the numbers would suggest that Y is better. Uh, that said, why don't we just run your bank account system to say that you're paying the mortgage at X for a period of time and see how you feel after three months? Oh, that's interesting. Mm. And it's always interesting to see. I mean, sometimes people are like, yep, that's sweet. I'm happy to make the sacrifices or no, no, this is stressed. This would stress me out. And you start to see that it would impact a lot of other areas beyond 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 the money, which which is I think a really valuable exercise for people to go through. And uh, for for retirees, I, that, I was creating that that type of thing. Let's let's give it a crack. Uh, have have a go for three six months, and uh, let's report back and see how you go. 
You were doing trial runs of expenditure and cash flow based on decisions. 100%. That's, that's amazing. Well, you, the idea of going into a bank branch and asking how much money you can borrow and then shopping based on that number for me is ludicrous because there's no acknowledgement of what, where, what you're doing at the moment. So that, and I, I just have this image in my mind of like somebody who goes to the bank, they, they stretch themselves, they get the really big family home, nice white picket fence, they've got the dog, but then they're so bloody stressed financially that they're working extra hours, they're, they've, banked on that bonus coming in every year and one year there's something that goes wrong and it doesn't come through and then they get stressed and then their partner's stressed and like you see this stuff all the time but if you can just have a have a go at it i mean what's the harm no there's no harm it's uh because i fully agree with your premise it's just i've never heard someone actually do dry runs with i mean it makes so much sense now you've mentioned it so you so whether they're retirees or whether they're a young family looking to buy a home there's going to be a financial impact to those decisions Hey, let's give that a let's let's do that before it's locked in. Yeah, I mean that's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> who, who, who told you to do this? Well, I thought about it myself because I, my wife and I we recently bought a place, and I don't know. I've never had a mortgage before, and I get a sense, and I can do a spreadsheet, and I, I get a sense of what I can afford. But how I feel about it, very different. So we just gave it a crack for a period of time, mate. That's uh. Do you put that? Do you talk to your clients about that? Do you say, hey, look, um. When, because a financial plan is all about pivoting as decisions, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, life changes so rapidly that certainly within a couple of years, you need to, as we learned from uh, Carl Richards, I should yeah, say, yeah, during yeah, the yeah. Uh, work from home tour. That if was you so have, good. for anyone listening to this who hasn't seen or uh, listened to this particular uh, presentation that Carl Richards did, absolute gold. Yeah, totally. And then the thing that uh, he didn't go into, but you've alluded to is that, well, why not? test before you get to that pivot why don't you test how you feel about that pivot before you do it do you do you say that to your clients do you say hey look when we get to this stage rather than diving in head first i'm going to want to work with you through this short little phase beforehand before you go and do it is that is that kind of the part of the conversation or do you only bring it up as it occurs or you sort of pre-selling that environment no i'm not that clever <laughs> i'm not i'm not so explicit in in a lot of the these areas i just try to bake it in uh, sure and, and you see i get a sense like when when you put together all these beautiful spreadsheets and plans for people uh it's it's pretty alien to look at a whiteboard or, or look at a computer screen and be like okay well there's your life what do you reckon mm. like it says good do you think it's good and like i don't know it's like okay well that's okay we can let's just let's just have a go for a second and see how it feels like that's that's okay. so I, I I gauge based on the people. I think I'm, I'm quite fortunate that I work with a lot of really capable people, and they're very uh, they they pick up things quite quickly. So creating a shadow environment for every single one of these people would be largely frustrating, I would say. But recognizing sometimes that people just need a little bit of help and a little bit of that assurance. It's not for me to tell them that it's the right or wrong thing to do, but to create an environment where they can work that out for themselves is is akin to that psychology and coaching. Thing. One, one of the biggest things, and this is one of the, the, the biggest struggles that I had to overcome working in, in uh, financial advice, because in financial advice, in my mind, it's like, okay, well, people will come to me because I'm, I'm a subject matter expert and they're there for my opinion. So I should be the advisor. I should be able to tell you what I think you should do. Coaching, totally opposite. Psychology, slightly different, but more coaching. Coaching, coaching will never... A, a good coach will never give you what they think or they'll never give you an answer. 
uh, but rather just ask questions and create an environment for you to figure it out for yourself. And for me, as as a practicing coach, it was very frustrating because I I would sit down with you, Clayton, and you know, as an advisor, I'd be giving you very clear views and opinions, and then I have to sit down as a coach, and I'd be getting these low marks saying you're. Uh, your approach is is inconsistent with what it is to be a coach because you're putting too much of yourself into that that person and you're 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 leading them uh, in, in a way where you're you're trying to create a, a predetermined outcome or you're trying to reach a predetermined outcome. Uh, but coaches are actually really really good at just exploring and and, and it was it was one it, now I'm, I bake that into my financial advice work where I, I seek less to be the uh, directive advisor of saying these these are all the things that I think but rather these are all the things that are worth considering. What do you think? That's cool. Where'd you do this training? Uh, the Australian College of Applied Psychology. Uh, I had had the benefit of working as an advisor for a couple of psychologists. So before I embarked on the degree, I just grabbed coffee with them and asked them what they thought I should do. So finance advisor, looking at more behavioral stuff and, and working with people, what do you think? And they said, well, actually, a clinical psychology degree ain't going to give you what you're after. You're going to spend a lot of time understanding the constructs of a brain and statistics and a lot of the deeper side to the the theory. And it's not very practical, frankly. Like you don't actually get practical elements uh, until much later in a psychology degree. But rather, if you look at uh, JJNI, I think, Jansen Newman, I think is the name of another college. But uh, basically, they're leading me more towards more applied uh, aspects. So... Uh, my degree is actually applied social sciences and social psychology as opposed to a degree in psychology. Uh, and the reason being is because the focus was more on the applied aspects, so the different areas that you can actually use. Yeah, that's an interesting part that we, again, going back to the work from home tour that we were discussing with Michael Kitsis. Mm. And he was saying there's a lot of data and there's a lot of um, takeouts looking at behavioral finance, but that it gives you nothing in terms of what to do what about to do. it. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and it's, it's so right. It's, it's 100% right. And uh, I, I was thinking in preparation for this, I was sort of looking at my old uni notes and I, it's just different tools, like different ways of engaging with people, different ways of thinking. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of the really lovely things that I, I picked up in coaching specifically uh, is that because <laughs> I, I'm a, I, I am a pretty traditional sort of fella, right? Like... Uh, uh, Spending spending time talking about how I'm feeling is not a comfortable. It's it's not where I sit, you know, <laughs> naturally. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that I was in this class. And to be honest, I was largely a skeptic in the early days. I, I liked finance because there is no subjective nature to it. It's one plus one is two, and yeah. that's just what it is. And let's move on. Like yeah. you're right or you're wrong. Uh, so p- going to this space, running straight into this space was uh, scared scared the hell out of me. But one thing that uh, someone told me very early on in the degree, which I loved, was, well, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff here, but just take the things that are helpful and leave behind anything that's not helpful. It's very Bruce Lee. Yeah. I'll, is it? Yeah. Absorb what is useful. Discard which is not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I And I, I did a presentation the other day on behavioral sciences, and, and that was just my approach. Like, I think everyone's trying a whole bunch of different things, but... Don't don't get too caught up. Like for anyone listening to this who's interested to explore, to explore, um, there are there are great resources. But don't don't get too caught up. Uh, there's a lot of different views, and I think people are still trying to figure this stuff out. Just take the things that are helpful and leave behind the things that are not. On that, 
what's helpful? What should do you have a couple of books that people should read? Blogs? Do you what uh, training? Is there anything that you recommend? I, for example, during the series, I've learned about a mental health first aid course. Oh yeah, how cool is that? Yeah, like, I love that. You know, you learn basic first aid for the for 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 someone's psychology. I think. Now that I've learned about that, I really would love to explore that uh, a bit more. But is there anything else that advisors should look at? In, in an ideal world, uh, doing doing the degree that I did would be amazing. I recognise that it's 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 certainly not a phasier aligned degree. So um, does that mean you have to do another degree? I need to do more units. Uh, okay. So I need to. Talk, it's a it's a uh, what is it called a non. Uh, Non-aligned or non-specific, right. non-relevant degree. Yeah, right. Uh, I challenge that notion, Fazio, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, tools, I look, I, I can't think of anything too formal. I think Carl Richards, uh, Michael Kitsis are amazing in this space. There's a lot of really brilliant books. Uh, Thaler, I mean, these are all, these should be relatively familiar. Thaler, Nudge, uh, a lot of decision-making. Uh, Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow is a bit of a hard read, but there's a lot of gold in that. It's really it's really looking at, area, at people who are focused on theories of motivation and choice architecture. So how do people behave in different environments? Anything that, that's there. Again, take the things that are helpful and, and leave behind the things that are not. Uh, Caldini is a, a an author of a book called Influence and... There's a there's a lot there's a lot of really interesting things there where I think salespeople can take that book down a bit of a journey. But if you think of it in a financial planning context, it's it's just got really strong tools on how to ask really awesome questions. Yeah, yeah. I read Influence when because um, we met originally at AMP Horizons, and there was a strong sales element to that. You would say, right? I would. Um, now, we were both – I'd come from accounting and then I'd spent a bit of time at Dixon Advisory. Um, so, I was, I was a power planner for a while. And, uh, and sales was something that I was just – had no experience in. I'd never done. Yeah. And sort of learning sales at that point was uh, – it, it was an experience. And so, I read Influence um, and I, I – from reading that book – I put together this whole script that I that I wrote down using all the the methods of influence, <laughs> right? And uh, and I remember trialing it on the phone and just constantly getting hung up on. <laughs> and, and and I was like, ah, oh, okay, cool. But it was a very good experience to go through because I thought at that stage sales was uh taking someone from not knowing anything about me to coming from uh it's going to a meeting and then becoming a client and i guess in its most rudimentary fashion that was yeah. what amp was trying to get us to do um sales however to i've completely changed my mind on sales now the, the way that i see sales now would be uh using the tools of technology social media email um, uh, YouTube, using all of these abilities to reach an audience and share a message, that's your sales process. That's you know, the marketing now because of it, uh, your ability to reach so many people and for people to opt in to what it is that you're doing. Mm. You can now do, the sales process is done digitally away from the individual and the better job that you do at, let's call it marketing, the smaller your sales pitch needs to be. In fact, it, it, the ultimate marketing would be that 
someone just reads or learns everything about what you do as advice online and then puts their credit card details in by clicking a button yeah. online. You know, ultimately, if you had a perfect marketing process, that's that's <laughs> what would happen. But obviously, financial advice is a bit more complicated than purchasing things online. So, uh, but ultimately, if you can get people to uh, believe in what it, what your message is to a large extent, they're just coming in to meet with you mm. just to double check, right? So the sales process now to me is. They should know everything about you. And your goal in the sales meeting is no longer to get them to know nothing about you to becoming a client. It's now, hey, let's just make sure that what you've learned about me makes sense for you to do actively. And if it does, if those two things align, then yeah, sure. And and the sales process now is really just generally speaking, it makes sense. But now specifically speaking, does it make sense? And uh that's how that's that's how I view uh, the sales process. Yeah, look, I, I, there's definitely merit to that. In in psychology, there's a there's a thing called uh, the I, I, I might get this wrong. I think it's the trans theoretical model of behavior change, and it looks at it looks at the ways in which people it looks at how people change their behaviors, which is an element of financial advisory, right? Or if you Absolutely. if you think about getting advice or or the sales process, it's Doing something and then paying somebody to to change the behavior. And uh, one thing that it taught me, the journey really goes through people. People pre-contemplate behavior change. So uh, I think in the case of smoking, it's like I understand that it's good to not smoke. And then they contemplate the stage two, where it's like I should stop smoking. And then it's preparation to say this is how I'm going to stop smoking. Then you take action to say okay, now I've stopped smoking. And then there's the the last stage, which is maintenance, so it's staying, not smoking, right? But actually, in this model, and, and I found this super, 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 super helpful, is that there's an actual extra stage, which is now baked into the process, which is called relapse, where people fail. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they don't actually meet, they don't, they go back to, to their original behavior. So I, I think of that those stages, and I think it would be interesting for advisors to keep those those stages in mind when they put together marketing messages or different ebooks or different content or podcasts or messaging or whenever you speak with somebody, just try to recognize where they are in their behavior stage because there are different things that you need to satisfy in order to get them to the next. And in in relapse, as an example, I, I think it's it's perfectly okay and, and I found it very refreshing to to have a model, to look at a model that said, yep, people will, will continue to do to, to take action and then fall over, but actually it's okay. So all we need to do is just make sure that that review frequency or the, or the sequencing there gets them back on track sooner than later. And it's, it's not a case of, and I found this a lot with clients where uh, we do a lot of savings planners and those sorts of things and where people are breaking the rules or, or reverting back to their behavior previously. It's not for me to say, oh, you've done the wrong thing, claim, but actually, okay, no, 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 in, in my psychology mind, okay, we're in relapse phase now. So what are the things that I need to talk to Clayton about to get him back to a pre-contemplation stage? And there are there are tools and techniques. Is Really, it's around strong questioning. But I think for any advisor, just recognizing that journey in putting together marketing or working with people or building a sales cycle similar to what you were talking about before. I think technology can do a lot of the heavy lifting here. Uh, it's helpful. I had a client many years ago um, come to me and say, because uh, funnily enough, I figured out a niche that I had that was uh, involved in finance. So people that were 
I would say high up in banks, Macquarie Bank, you know, BT, or, or I, I looked after people who were working in finance. Right. And what I, was that like? It was really good. Yeah. Because, um, I, and, and in fact, if I was to start another company and to get back into financial advice, I would go even deeper. Yeah. Because what's really interesting about working with people that work in finance is they understand it academically, but they don't understand the interaction between the personal yeah. interaction with finance. So they can talk about billions of dollars, <laughs> but you know, when talking about uh, the price of a cup of coffee, they're, they're sort of, they're, yeah. there's, there's, it's, and it's a really interesting, it was, yeah. I, I loved it actually. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. So I had a client, he ended up starting his own business, but he wanted my help simply for accountability. And the idea of baking in a process where you're expecting people to fail makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess an issue with, no, it wasn't so much an issue, but it was a foreseeable problem because I dealt a lot with cash flow was, okay, th- while we get someone who to go from uh, where their spending patterns are currently to where their spending patterns should be or most optimally be, mm. I would bake in error and failure to begin with so let's say uh let's say we're taking care of all your bills let's say, you know so your fixed costs are done short and long-term savings uh are, are all taken care of debt's getting paid down and then we figured out there's a certain amount that you wanted to spend per week so on top of all of everything else you need to think about let's say that amount was 300 dollars, right as an individual per week what I would then do is I would say, okay, cool. Let's start with 400. And mm. yeah, so so I'm going to bake into this process that you're going to fail because, and I learned that because if as soon as, because it was such a huge transition from, yeah. uh, from what they were doing to what they are doing now that I would anticipate. And, and it's, there was just so much work with all of my early clients about moving money around for them because yeah. they kept making the mistake that I learned I'm just going to bake it in. And so for the first quarter, they've got an extra 25, 30%. And I would say to them at the end of the quarter, how do you feel about that? Because ultimately, we want to get to this, but is it working for you now? Do you have money left over or are you spending all of it? In which case, we need to edit the plan. And, yeah. And But I, I didn't have a framework for that. I just That was just learned through experience. But you're, you're saying the expectation that someone will fail uh, is, is now almost a part, like as a part of a proper plan. Yeah, well, I think it just takes the pressure off for people because I, I know for, for people who work with me for the first time, similar to what you're saying, we propose a pretty drastic change to behavior and it, it, it can be uncomfortable. It's a bit of a leap, right? And just it's a little bit taking what's helpful and forgetting what's not. It's like if this doesn't work in a month, like and I say to clients now, it's going to take three months before it starts to feel comfortable and that's that's okay. Like, like remove remove the stress or the pressure of having to nail everything right now and make it sure it's 100% perfect. Let's let's just agree that this is a good thing to do for right now and then for tomorrow if it's uncomfortable we just have a conversation. When you when you did the uh, the extra 25 30% did you did you find that they were spending that money? I'm I'm interested because uh, anchoring would suggest that and I know I would do this. I would definitely adjust to whatever I get. Yeah, so as you know, when you're dealing with people's cash flow emotion's a big part of it, right? So how people respond, people 
because it's um, proximity to expenditure, right? So worrying about your uh, retirement so far ahead, so far away, you know, assuming you're dealing with someone in their 30s or 40s, yep. that it's this theoretical concept. Sure, yes, fine, let's get the most. Ultimately, all you're trying to do is get the most amount of money so that you can spend when you no longer receive an income. Fine, sure. When it, when proximity to expenditure is sh- very short, the increase, the 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 emotional reaction, yeah, is is super high. Are you saying I can't go to dinner tonight? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> correct, right? So, so literally, yeah. So the money today uh, is more important than money tomorrow, which is more important than money next week, which is more important than money next yeah. month. And when you're dealing with cash flow, you are dealing with the money today. And so I noticed that we would come up with this optimal plan. I would bake in the fact that they would fail. And then I would ask them three months in. Oh, but you know what it's like. You're speaking to the person so regularly. Yeah. When, 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 and, but, but, and, and I'm asking, sort of asking here and there. But after a while, we would then have a meeting and I would say, how is it going? Like, do you feel like your behavior has changed to warrant uh, this level, this reduction in expenditure, or should we edit the plan? And because the emotional attachment was so high, I noticed there was a dial called guilt. <laughs> guilt was an, an emotional dial that I had access to. Yeah. And so basically, let's say uh, 300 was the goal, um, but we were giving them 400. And I would say, are you spending that 400? And if they said yes, they would look at me and they'd say, sorry. <laughs> yes. It, it would be like this. I, 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 I'm overspending and, um, I don't want to. And I'd say, okay, well, let's, let's try something else. Let's now, let's now flip it up. Let's move it to say 375. But rather than paying you 375 at thir- on Thursday, what happens if we give you, I don't know, maybe uh, 150 on Monday and then 225 on a Thursday, right? And so we're just trialing mm. something different, right? So now we're going to pay you twice a week, different amounts. So you've still got the majority to smash on the weekend, but now your Monday is still, you know that you're still going to get that and you've reduced by 25%. How do you feel about that? Cool. Like that's, that's a really good shot. So then we trial that for a handful of months. Well, how are you feeling? Oh, actually, I'm, I'm kind of left over with a little bit of money at the end. Uh, when I'm getting to Thursday, I'm realizing I've still got maybe $30 there or something. I'm like, okay, cool. So what you're suggesting maybe is we keep the Monday and Thursday, but instead of receiving 150 on Monday, we'll only do 120. And they're like, yeah, let's give that a shot. Mm. And then each time we're sort of, you know, uh, when, when that sort of quarterly meeting would happen, they'd come in, we'd look at the big screen in the office, we'd go through the calculator, what that means here. Ultimately, they knew and I knew we were aiming for a certain figure. But I realized it would take them maybe 12 months of editing their yeah, behavior. Yeah. And, and my job was to give them different options of payment uh, you know, regularities at different amounts to the point where, and it was kind of cool, like everyone had a different payment plan. So everyone, payment plan, receiving the money, <laughs> their <laughs> own payment plan, yeah, right? Yeah. So the biggest, you know, uh, so 
some people would receive money, and I'm not even kidding, every single day. Really? I had clients that would get paid $40 on every single, uh, on, on the five they days. They just couldn't help themselves. Exactly. So, for every, they wow. knew that $40 was going to turn up. I had other clients that would want to get paid monthly because they just liked that idea of having the lump sum. Yeah. And then they sort of had a bit of control of where they wanted to spend it every day. Some people like gaming it as well. They're like, ah, oh, I managed to get to the end of the month and I've still got my money. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So, so I did find that really interesting. I I certainly didn't have a model for that, that expecting a failure. But now that you mentioned it, I think, I think you were baking it in, man. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and trialing to get to that ultimate. And we, and sometimes we'd get there and sometimes we wouldn't get there. Um, I do find that whole concept of like hacking the, the process in a way that makes sense for the individual to get their best outcome. Mm. And, and, uh, the things that I did really well in my advice was the outcomes. I was very good at getting outcomes. Like I would, and I've always said this, I'd always put my outcomes against any advisor. What I, I lacked, I, I felt, and certainly looking back, was the process on getting those outcomes. So I wasn't very good at taking people on a journey. Beyond that cash flow piece, the rest of it, I was very directive. I was very sort of- Yeah, this is what I think. This is what I think. But the word advisor, like this is something I've struggled with so much. And it was one of the frustrations I had back at AMP. It's like the word advisor implies that I will advise you. I'll tell you what to do. Correct. And I, I struggle with like, call me naive, but back in A&P Horizons, I remember when I first, it, it was basically this, this circular thing of like, well, you can't lead somebody's decision. You can't, you can't put them in you can't uh, you can't tell them to be investing here because you've told them that i was like yeah but they asked me it's like the way i I, i'm sort of thinking about it now i wonder i wonder if the the notion of an advice maybe maybe the yeah maybe the notion of an advisor is is a bit worth worth considering to some extent well i mean a lot of people are moving across to financial coach right yeah yeah the one one of the things uh, that i i would think listening to this uh if if i was listening to it five years ago is i was a real cynic or a critic of cash flow advice because i would think that talking to somebody about spending 775 dollars versus 150 dollars is playing in the margins and um, it's not scalable and, and it's not where the value is but actually thinking back to the psychology degree you're not selling 25 dollars a week it's it's that behavior change and, yeah and that that you can't quantify it. It's it's different. Yeah, it's it's the equivalent is getting the personal trainer at the gym. Yeah, right? Ev- everyone knows that if you get the personal trainer, you know you're going to end up with a better result. Just do you want to pay for it? I, I have, and if I think to my my mates, and as we're all sort of getting older, a lot of these guys now are in a position where you know they've spent their early years in their twenties kind of asking me for advice because I was in financial planning and they didn't want to be a client and I didn't want them as a client. Yeah. But they're like, you know, Clay, what should I do? And I'm like, look, this isn't advice. What credit card, mate? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, and this is the kind of thing. And and I had a call from one of these guys the other day and he was like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's look at what you've got. You're on a salary of about 180. You're maxing out your... Um, concessional contributions. You've just bought a house. You're asking me for help. I'm like, I'm not your financial planner. Like, you need to get a financial planner. And like, the, and, and and after spending ten minutes with him, he he goes, yeah. And I remember saying, actually, 
for you, your personality type, I've got someone for you. Um, and But I never intro. Okay. I always, because I know so many financial planners, yeah. I think of the personality types. And, yeah. And I just go, okay, you should research this person. So I get them to Google the advisor and then do their own research. And I actually tell them, don't even mention my name like i i want you to go through the process as if you are completely foreign to them because you should and then if you end up becoming a client cool like we can all all talk about it at that point but i don't want to lead the witness yeah um and i want you to get the perfect outcome for yourself and i've found that to be a really good way of uh referring uh, clients to to advisors couldn't couldn't agree more. I actually had a conversation with a friend of a friend this week. Uh, he's like, "All oh, right, you know, we we caught up at the wedding a couple of years back, mate. I'm I'm keen to get my stuff sorted. What do you reckon?" And so, like, cool, mate. Oh, we had a conversation. We spoke for about thirty minutes. I was like, "Yep, yeah, cool. Like, you you definitely fit you your problems are the problems that we solve. So that's great." Uh, I will just say that it won't be me though. <laughs> so I just pass it on to another because it's not fair. Like you just, there's just too many, there's too much going on in that relationship to, yeah. it, it just, it, it's, it would be unfair on me as an advisor. And I just wouldn't want to be, you don't want to be the guy walking into a barbecue with your mates. It's like, oh, Ray, you told me to roll my money into Sun Super. Yeah, no. You, like you don't, you don't want to be that. Yeah. But you don't, you don't want to turn them away either because I actually want help. So, uh, man, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. Um, so one of the, I, I guess if we were to get close to summarizing, uh, two really interesting things pulled out of this conversation was one, this idea of there's, they, there is an expectation that the client's going to fail and you've just now adopted that as part of the, the planning process. And then the other one is, this idea that you've got a, a median point of your of you as an individual, how happy or sad you are. Um, if you're going from median up, then that's coaching and you're trying to peak performance and helping. And that really is where advice plays. If you think about it, it's always about dragging that person up from where they are. The, because in order for someone to have advice, they're either got to be one of two things. They either have to have a bunch of assets or they either have to have it like a decent income, right? Because at the end of the day, sure, like a low income and low asset person probably needs advice, but what you can do for them is kind of limited. Their, their need for insurance is high. Mm. So, 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 so sure, like insurance advice is super valuable because if you can't pay for your own problems that go wrong, then you need someone that can. And insurance advice is super valuable in that position. But uh, uh, realistically, and especially with all the costs going up so much, it's either a case of like, if someone has a high income or high asset base, um, then they, they just simply should be getting advice. And the idea of taking someone into that peak performance area, I think is a really good way of articulating it. I guess I sort of, this, this, uh, this podcast series has largely been about where people are when they're below that median place. Yeah. Um, and trying to get, uh, trying to get them back to the set point, back to that set point. But advisors currently don't really have a lot of tools to do that. Yeah. Um, however, it's a conversation that needed to be had and I would like to see what happens in that space because as an individual, it's not highly enjoyable to work with people that are in that position. 
But I'm sure, I have no doubt that there are people who need advice today that are in that position. And actually, to be fair, there are going to be advisors that have clients who drop to that at any given stage. What is one in five people who are going to have a mental health problem? So let's call it that one in five of your clients each year are going to have that event happen. Or one in five, one in five of your clients right now. Yeah, one, of your, one in five of your clients right now is having that experience that takes them below their median place. I'd love to start getting some literature and to start getting some research around while advice, but it's kind of interesting because advice is really just finding their feet with median upwards. Yeah. So now I'm sort of expanding that conversation uh, from below to median and we don't really have a lot there. Um, who knows that I think that's, but if you consider that 20% of your, of your client base at any given time are going to be experiencing that, then what we do there, I think it will ultimately need to be included in the advice process. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent, man. And there, there are, there are tools that exist specifically in, in the coaching space. There's a coaching academy institute in, in Sydney. Uh, I've not worked directly with them, but they do, do definitely work in this space. But I think at this point, it's just a case of, acknowledging that one in five of your clients are potentially uh you know not not in a great place so when just keep, just having that front of mind i find is helpful you know i, I don't know the answers but yeah. that's okay like we'll you know we'll, we'll we'll help each other as we go through the journey and and for because because we talk to people and we're so intimate when it comes to their lives having having a layer of empathy is is you know that i i, I think just just recognizing this stuff is a big part of the battle well, mate, you know, we've been uh, the founders of XY together for many years. And I would say probably your, your exposure to that psychological piece has re- has reverberated so deeply within XY. And then thankfully, we've had the chance to re- reverberate that further out. So you've had a big influence on advice, certainly in this country and, and around the world. So uh, on top of all your awards, <laughs> mate, you know, blah, 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 but Look, it's been really cool to um, to to do this stuff with you for a while. So thanks for coming on as a guest. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for asking me.